Sitting in a box undigified Gonna rewind and give them one more try Think about the days of lo-fi Mixtape Memorex and TDK Getting music out there the old-fashioned way Making the greatest hits of one day Mixtape Phonograph and dual cassette Before you could get everything on the internet But some things ain't made it there yet Mixtape Line in, line out if you don't have a line Hold the recorder to the speaker, turn the volume to nine Here's an accidental slice of time Welcome to Gen X Mixtape, a nostalgic podcast dedicated to the art of making mixtapes and the Gen Xers who made them. This is part one of Creepy Movie Tunes, where Alan and I will be curating side A of a mixtape featuring songs that became unsettling through their use in the movies. Happy Halloween. Happy Halloween. Is it just me or is this not the greatest time of the year? Oh, it's my favorite season. It's my favorite holiday. I I would take Halloween over Christmas any day. Well, to me, it's the whole season, right? When, um, when, when the end of August hits, when back to school is, is in full force, and as teachers, of course, that can be a bittersweet uh, moment, right? Right. But it's made all good by the fact that you have, you know, the, the cooler weather, but it's still nice. You have, eventually, the leaves will start changing, which obviously is gorgeous, but you have Friday night football games back again. You know, there's something about the sound of the band warming up in the parking lot, getting ready to enter the stadium, you have, uh, of course, all the, I mean, it, it's a big divisive issue to talk about pumpkin stuff, but I'm on the side of, I love anything pumpkin, right? So you have pumpkin coffee, pumpkin beer, pumpkin or ale, pumpkin everything, it seems now. And I just love pumpkin. So I had my first pumpkin coffee, you know, uh, when the season turned and it just brings back all those great memories. Yep. Well, I, I've already purchased the the pumpkin beer. I have my atomic pumpkin at home. Oh, atomic pumpkin. That's my favorite. Yep. That's that's the best uh, pumpkin you, ale. You got me hooked on it. I used to be pumpkin was, was yeah. what I would go but this for. This has but a little bit of jalapeno, a yeah. little bit of a that kick spice. To it. Yeah. About three seconds after the after absolutely. The but no, this it's always been my favorite season. As you said, when the when the leaves change, I and mean, there's nothing more beautiful. And just the temperate weather. I mean, yeah. I love high sixties during the day and low fifties at night. To me, that is just Yep. incredible and I love the idea you can wear shorts and a hoodie at the same time yes, and it yes. does not look the least bit awkward and you know you can go to a, a cookout a barbecue on, on Saturday and go to a clam bake on Sunday yep. I mean it's it really is a season that welcomes truly a, a mix of, right. of everything and yeah football starts and uh, and of course there's Halloween right and yeah I I am a horror junkie, so Halloween is just my thing. I wish there was somewhere you could move. I mean, you can obviously move to Florida if you want summer all year long, and you can move up to Canada if you want winter pretty much right. all year long. There's no fall zone. There's nowhere you can live in the leaves and that crisp weather like you described and, and have Halloween, unless you, of course, go into the nightmare before Christmas land and well, you can yes. live in Halloween. Well, I, you know, the West Coast, there are areas on the West Coast where the temperatures are very similar to what we have now. Yeah. But, of course, the leaves are don't right. change. I mean, right. you know, it's palm trees in the sand, so it's it's not quite the same thing. Um, but no, I, I just I'm with you. I, I love the fall. I love 
Halloween, and I am very psyched about this week's episode. Well, this is our third Halloween special. For, uh, I think it was season one. We did fun Halloween songs. Great for parties, right? Yeah. Um, season two was scary Halloween, where we chose songs that were dark and, and somewhat unsettling. And we were looking for a third theme, and we came up with the idea of all these, these songs that have been used in, in horror or horror-related movies over the past, you know, what, 40, 50 years, maybe even more, 60 years. Yeah. And uh, I think we came up with a pretty good list. We did. And, it, it, you know, I pride myself that you and I are eclectic. You know, we, we don't limit ourselves. It's, it's definitely a Gen X podcast, but, you know, we pull music from all eras, all genres, as they fit. You right. Know? I mean, generally, we, tr- we try to stay in that sweet but the, spot. But the movies, though. But the movies... Are all Gen X. Yeah, the movies are all Gen X, but, you know, the the music on this is just so... Oh, it, it's all over the place, <laughs> yeah, you know? know. And, Let's just say, if you, you have Gene Kelly on one end, and you have uh, Huey Lewis in the news on right. the other, so it's yeah, it's, be an interesting... It's a very interesting mix, but it's, it's also... I was listening through it again today, and it's so much fun. And um, it'll be fun to talk movies, too. Yes, oh, yeah. Know? And we always do music, and I, I love talking music, but, you know, we are both pop cultural gurus to... to I thought you were going to say phenomenon. We're not no, pop culture no, phenomenon. No, we're not. not yet. No. But, <laughs> but uh, no, I mean, we certainly are not limited in our knowledge uh, of, you know, Gen X to, to the music. And it, it's, you know, when we did the the Gen X movie. Um, the 1982 movies? No, 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 no. Uh, oh, when we did the tournament. The tournament. Yeah, Thank yeah, you. Yeah. I with could, the not, other, with the other could podcasts, not could right. not come up with that word, tournament. Um, that was it was really novel to me, you know, just the two of us sitting back, no notes, just talking movies. Yeah. And I'm hoping we have some of that this time, but of course we're going to be talking the music as well. So this, this ought to be, ought to be a really interesting episode. Well, we haven't mentioned this in a while, but we, we have um, all of our mixtapes as playlists on Spotify. You don't have to be a Patreon to, to get access to that. Anyone can get access to that. Just go to our website, genxmixtape.com. And there is a link to the Spotify playlist, and all of the playlists going back through the three seasons are available for you to listen to. We do have a Patreon account. Right now, it's not really tied to anything. Um, we talked about maybe having some, some features like early access and so forth. Right now, it's just kind of a, hey, if you're enjoying the show and you want to kind of offset the cost a little bit, we're not doing this for, for money, but you know, there's a little bit of an expense involved, and it's, it's, it's $10 for the, uh, for the Patreon. But we're going to play with that a little bit as that goes on, especially when season four comes around. Right. And uh, we have uh, quite a presence on, on Facebook, so check out our Facebook page. We also have a Facebook group, which is a little more centered towards uh, discussion of the podcast and, and not just Gen X themes in general, which is, the, I think, what? The, the, the main account is we incorporate yeah. everything, in movies, yeah, the, music. Yeah, Facebook, the actual page is all things Gen X. And we try to limit it a little bit uh, to the podcast uh, on, on the group. We also have uh, Twitter. We have uh, Instagram. <laughs> we always talk about getting TikTok off the ground, but I'm not sure that's ever going to happen. And uh, please uh, feel free to reach out to us at podcast at genxmixtape.com and give us some feedback. In fact, uh, we got uh, one that came in a couple days ago I'd like to read because this was a lot of fun here. Yeah. And uh, it came from Colleen. She said, I found your podcast a few weeks ago and I'm loving it. I added the playlist to my Spotify library and they have helped pass the time while bringing my kids back to college. Where else but Bowling Green and Kent State? 
I live outside Buffalo and have no idea why both of my kids chose <laughs> Ohio for college. Uh, keep the great shows coming, and I would love a walking mixtape. That's a great, great uh, idea. We're going to put that on, on a season four yeah, list. Most definitely. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, well, we think that your kids are incredibly uh, smart for choosing Ohio, but maybe it might be we a do. little bit biased. We do. Well, as far as criteria here, um, we kind of already talked about it, but uh, we decided to stay away from scores, all right? There are a lot of scores. Um, Candyman by Philip Glass is just incredible. But we wanted to keep some consistency. And, right. And technically, that one could have gone either way, but um, we didn't, we're not putting in, like, the Halloween theme uh, from John Carpenter. We're not putting, uh, well, I mean, there are a ton of scores that oh, are familiar. So. And, and, well, and that's why I finally just dropped them from my, because at first we, we were going to, you know, permit them, but... Going in and out, interweaving between songs and scores, just it, it became very uneven. And frankly, I could not decide which scores to use. Right. You know, they're, they're just far too many. So, yeah, we eliminated those, which made it a little easier. Um, all of the songs, they come from films that may not be horror films necessarily, but they all have elements of horror in some respect. Right. It could be a satire of horror. It could be right. just creepy in nature. Yeah. Maybe border on science fiction a little bit. But. Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's... I think I think you're going to really enjoy this one. So well, let's get started. Let's do it. And Alan, you have first pick because it's side A. It is. All right. So my first track uh, for this week's episode, I went with The Man Comes Around by Johnny Cash. And I heard, as it were, the noise of thunder. One of the four beasts saying, come and see. And I saw, and behold, a white horse. There's a man going round taking names. And he decides who to free and who to blame. Everybody won't be treated all the same. There'll be a golden ladder reaching down when the man comes around. The hairs on your arm will stand up at the terror in each sip and in each sup. Will you partake of that last offered cup or disappear into the potter's ground when the man comes around? Hear the trumpets, hear the pipers, 100 million angels singing. Multitudes are marching to the big kettle drum. Voices calling, voices crying. Some are born and some are dying. It's Alpha and Omega's kingdom come. Now, this is the title track from Johnny Cash's American Four, The Man Comes Around. Although it was written several years prior to the release of the album. An alternative earlier recording appears on the Unearthed box set from 2003. Um, but The Man Comes Around, this this was one of the last songs Cash wrote before his death. Uh, both sung and spoken, the song makes numerous biblical references, especially to the book of Revelation. It's very apocalyptic. It is, yes. Um, the idea for the song 
came from a dream of Cash's where he was in Buckingham Palace and the Queen said to him, Johnny Cash, you're just like a thorn tree in a whirlwind. Uh, Cash woke up. He decided that that dream must be biblical, and he found the reference he had been looking for in the book of Job, chapter 38. Uh, Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkeneth counsel by words without knowledge? Gird up, uh, gird up now thy loins like a man, for I will demand of thee and answer thou me. You sound just like Samuel L. Jackson when you read that. Do I? Do I? <laughs> oh, maybe Which, I by the way, that quote from Pulp Fiction is not in the Bible. No, no, it is not. <laughs> anyway. I can read Ezekiel if you, if you like. Um, but um, there are a number of biblical references in the lyrics. Uh, the spoken word intro that opens both the song and the album is taken from Revelation chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, which describes John the Apostle's vision of the four horsemen of the apocalypse, each shouted by one of the four beasts, first mentioned in Revelation chapter 4, verses 6 through 9. We then hear several other Revelation references as Cash sings of how the man, which would be God, will one day come to pass judgment. The, uh, the chorus indicates that these events will be accomplished by trumpets, pipers, and 100 million angels singing. All of those are references to some scripture. As a man of Jewish faith, I'm surprised you know your New Testament pretty oh, well. <laughs> well, you know, <laughs> know. It, um, honestly, you know, being Jewish, I, I learned long ago that I had, well, take a step back, as an English teacher, right. you know, I, I've read the Bible as literature, I've read the Quran, I've, I've read many of the world's uh, holy, script, books. holy books. Yeah. Um, just, I mean, just to pick up on the allusions sure. as, as they occur in literature. Sure. But I also learned long ago that as a Jew, um, you know, everybody, uh, there are a lot of people out there and I, I, I do not get upset with them because that's their faith that are, that are evangelical, you know, and they, they come and they, they, you know, believe that they're doing good by trying to bring people uh, to their faith. But it's very hard to defend your religion against others if you don't have the the knowledge of the others. It makes for religion. good discussion. It does right. that too, um, and of course, Judaism and Christianity being so closely linked, you know. Um, Revel- anyway, I'm sorry to get no, no, no. But it's an interesting conversation. I mean, Revelation, especially. I mean, historically, uh, scholars have found that you know it does not mean what a lot of uh, people take it to mean well, yeah, as prophecy. A lot of people feel it actually it was about Rome and Nero, it and is, it was yeah. it was coded language. Uh, yeah, ab- that, absolutely uh, about. But yeah, we, we can't have a religion podcast. Today. No, no, we cannot. <laughs> that would but, be fun. But Revelation, I thought, fit. You know, we're talking about the apocalypse. We're right. talking about oh, yeah. the end totally. of times. Um, and yeah, one last point. The song also alludes to the parable of the ten virgins from the Gospel of Matthew. Um, with the lyrics, the virgins are all trimming their wicks, which is a reference to the virgins' preparation. It sounds dirty, but it's not. Of the second coming of Christ. <laughs> it does. It sounds, I, you know, I, didn't I love know. it when women trim their wicks. <laughs> Moving on. Uh, <laughs> elsewhere, the song mentions the wise men who bow before the Lord's throne, cast their golden crowns at the feet of God. Uh, Revelation 4 refers to elders who worship the Lord and lay their crowns before him. Um, and, of course, there is also mention of Alpha and Omega, which refers to God himself, but also to the cries of the newborn and the dying. All of this biblical imagery makes perfect sense when you know the movie from which it comes. And that would have been... The uh, the 2004 remake of Dawn of the Dead, and I still not have seen Zack Snyder's Dawn of the Dead. 
I, I loved I love the Romero versions. I I like yeah. Zack Snyder. I really enjoy his work with with the DC universe. I haven't watched the remake. Well, here's here is what is so incredible uh, about Snyder's version because it's the opening credits, right? Opening and closing. And closing. Okay. Yeah. The man comes around and plays both opening and closing credits, and it is his Dawn of the Dead that remake. It is perhaps the only horror film, the only reboot of any horror film that I've ever seen that is on par with the original. It is Ooh. just as good, if not See, better. to me, it's going to be hard to top the satirical horror of right. Romero right. at and the it, Monroeville Mall. Is this one also take place in a mall? Is it that type of yeah, reboot? It's, okay. it's, yeah, but it, it, it doesn't have a lot of the satirical quality. Oh, it's of, not. Of it's Romero. just a straight horror it's film. It's a straight horror okay. film, but, but nonetheless, it is it is. A fantastic horror film. Wait, so there's no zombie using the blood pressure machine in the mall? Please tell me they threw that in as an Easter egg a tribute to the original. You know, it's, it's been a while since I've seen it. I don't, I do not know if that is there. one of my favorite there. parts of the original. <laughs> I, um, yeah, it's, it's been a few years since I've, I've last seen it. I can't promise that there is All right, well, I'm going to watch it this, this weekend. But it, but it is, yeah, I mean, and I'm not alone in, in saying this. I mean, horror fans, you know, everywhere have, have credited this as being the one reboot, the one remake that is every bit as good as a lot of people say better than okay. the original. Okay, right. that's, that's a bold um, statement. But, you know, it, the song has been used many times on many TV shows and films. It was also used in 28 Days Later, but not not as a central, right. you know, thematic device. But yeah, uh, Dawn of the Dead, 2004. Um, yeah, opening and closing credits. The It first plays after the little girl um, basically attacks her her mom and dad okay. um, well attacks her, her dad because the mom throws the little girl out of the bedroom shuts the door and of course the dad is you know turning and of course you, you can take a guess what happens to his wife who has just shut the door and you know basically barricaded herself in the room with her husband um, and then at, right after that they showed news clippings of how the world is falling apart and here comes Johnny Cash talking about the end times so perfect perfect choice for the film and I thought it'd be a great way to start our, our mixtape. I'm going to have to add that to my list, to the top of my list. Things to see. All right. My turn. Your turn. All right. I'm going to start with, uh, I don't know what we decided to start with, but this might be a potential opening song for the mixtape. Uh, I went with the science fiction double feature from the Rocky Horror Picture Show.
Of course, it was first in the Rocky Horror Show, Show. which yeah. was a stage production. It uh, was produced in 1973 by Richard O'Brien, who who wrote uh, lyrically and, and, and musically the entire uh, production, stars in the production, yep. produces. I don't know, did, did he also... Um, uh, was he also in, uh, what am I trying to say here? What, what, are, what part of the... Oh, did he direct? I don't know if he directed. No, I don't think... I think I'm not sure who directed, but it's pretty much a one-man show. <laughs> Rocky Horror well, Picture it is, Show, yeah, um, yeah. As far it, as um, producing, plays Riff Raff, of course. Right. So, yeah. But um, yeah, so two years later, then um, after the stage show um, premiered, they made the Rocky Horror Picture Show, which of course has become a cult classic all uh, across uh, at least the country. I would imagine in other places in the world as well. Um, so. That opening, that's, that iconic opening from, from Rocky Horror, and even if you haven't seen the Rocky Horror Picture Show, which uh, there's no excuse not to now because you don't have to go to a midnight screening anymore like we used to. Although that's still the best that's way still to see it. That's the way to go, yeah. right. Um, you have those iconic lips, which were inspired by some avant-garde painting. I think it was a Spanish painting that, uh, that inspired um, that look. And so, so the actual... I think we might have. Did we talk about? I think this was one of the questions when we were at Zabe's um, it game was, show. It was, yeah. So, so the song is sung by by Richard O'Brien, but the lips actually belong to Patricia Quinn, who plays Magenta. Yes, and he plays Riff Raff, the butler. She's Magenta, the maid. So it all makes yeah. sense. And 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 the lips are upside down. Yes. They, they filmed her upside down singing or lip syncing rather. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah, Patricia Quinn. One of my. F- I, I I love Magenta. Oh yeah. Oh, and, yeah. and Columbia. Yeah. But. but uh, well, I'm sorry. Okay, no. <laughs> you go. I know you're a big this. fan as well. Yep. Lyrically, the song uh, pays tribute to the show's influences, okay, including B-movies and film serials from the classic period in Hollywood. So not all of, of course, the song's called Science Fiction Double Feature, but this was especially a time when, when science fiction and horror really overlapped, right? Uh, a lot of those horror films dealt with, you know, doctors creating, you know, messing with science and doing horrible things by genetically engineering new creatures and so or aliens coming from outer space but they were aliens that were here to, to harm us so I, I i think this fits in the horror genre right without question as far as uh, as, as why we would uh, include that um films and actors um named in the song include king kong the day the earth stood still dr x the invisible man um, what are some of the actors? Uh, Faye Ray is mentioned. Um, uh, Anne Francis. Yep, yep. There's um, just a... I'd have to... It's a who's who. Yeah, I'd have to go the through the song. I mean, it really is. There are so many that are named. And I have such fond memories of attending Rocky Horror Midnight Screenings at Bowling Green. I know you and I went several times. Did we go the first time? I can't remember... Um, if, if my first time seeing it was with you or not, but it, I, it, I believe it was I at believe the Clizel. Yeah, I believe it was the. Yeah, we were, we were with each other when we both saw it for the first time, if I remember correctly. Which is no longer a movie theater now. It's it still looks like a movie theater. The exterior is the same, but they've turned it into a, a bar, or a restaurant, from what I understand. I thought it was a, I thought it was a concert or a, uh, a, a venue, a concert. They venue. did have it as a concert venue for a while. Maybe it still is. The last time I was up to visit my son, I got the impression that now it was a bar. But maybe it's both. Maybe they maybe they just have live music. Like, like any other bar so be, yeah it'd be a cool venue to, to see a show so yeah I just I just remember getting so excited no matter how many times I you know uh, attended these screenings when the crackle of the old film fills the speakers and you see the, the giant lips and you just settle in for you know just a bunch of chaotic uh, fun and mayhem 
Oh, and with the props, you know, the Claisel, when we used to see it there, the, they really didn't put any limitation on the props that you could bring Well, people in. would bring props that really were never were even never used. Were never even used. Yeah, that's true. But I mean, the, the, the squirt guns and the, you know, the the food, just the food items themselves. I mean, the Claisel didn't put any... No. Probe, you know, it did not stop us from using everything. Right. But I remember someone was trying to smuggle in, smuggle in um, shaving cream, and the, the manager said... How does this even fit in? Right, he, he wouldn't let he wouldn't let that go through. But if it was something that was recognized as a prop right. for the audience participation portion, uh, he didn't have a problem with it. Yeah, which is not true of most theaters. Today. Oh, is that the case? Yeah, um, I've seen it um, several different places. I've seen it at the University of Cincinnati. Sometimes I go up to Cleveland. They show it almost every weekend um, up up in Cleveland at, at um, the theater. Was it Valley View? Um, no, probably in, in the Tower Cinemas. I don't know. I. Doesn't matter, but yeah. um, it. Uh, but they always put a limitation. There are a lot of props that they will not let you bring. Well, that's um, no fun. I yeah. mean, I can understand. Well, it depends on how destructive. Toilet paper is mess to clean up. It's not destructive. You know, squirt well, gun, same same deal. Well, and wet toilet paper. Is, well, yeah, that's true. Know, even that's true. Worse, right? Um, Confetti. Yeah, I think of all the different newspaper, what newspaper? Yeah, no, the the theater in Cleveland though, it's called the Cedar Lee. Oh, the Cedar Lee, Cedar yeah, Lee. Yeah, 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 the Cedar Lee. Um, that is in Valley View. Yeah, That's the one it is. View. Yeah, uh, and pretty much every weekend they have a midnight screening. Well, we're gonna um, have to go. Yeah, I'd that'll be, be fun anytime. I think the Palace also usually runs the Palace it. runs it at Halloween. Okay. Um, always on the third. I don't think it's a midnight. I don't think they've ever done a midnight show. Though. Well, that's no fun. I know. I think it's maybe nine. Come on, eight, gotta follow the rules, folks. Um, I will say I, I'm going to see it uh, October 12th at BJ Thomas. Oh, uh, Brad Majors uh, is going to be there for very a, very Boswick. Boswick. Yeah, he's going cool. to be there for a question and answer. Tickets are still available if you're in. The Northeast Ohio area with us. Are, is it just a question and answer with him? Or are they showing the film? As no, well? They're showing the film as well. Okay. Yeah. They're going to show the film. They'll allow props for that. I, I don't know. I'm looking forward to it. At least for the cosplay, right? Oh, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah. They're not going to prevent anybody from dressing in character. So, so, folks, if you have not attended a midnight screening of Rocky Horror Picture Show for the spectacle, that's one of those things you need to put on your bucket list. Yeah, you really do. And I'm always torn when you have a Rocky Horror version, do you actually, there's a part of me that always recommends or wants to recommend that you watch one of the film versions with with the audience participation so you know what to, to shout. There's another part of me that, that thinks you should go in blind. No, you go in blind and yeah. you learn. You learn as you... You, you do. But it's it, part of the fun is just the cat calls. You yeah. know, just the, the call and response with the film. So... You know, when you're, although honestly, I remember back our first time, the wonder of it all was hearing the things that were being right, shouted. You know, right. it, I mean, today it's what makes it most fun is doing that ourselves. But yeah, it, it's just eye opening because I, I remember um, Joe in Cincinnati, we went to see him at night showing um, during his freshman year right before everything closed for COVID, we went to a midnight showing and he and his girlfriend and Joel had seen Rocky Horror. He'd watched it with me at home, but he had, he'd never seen it live. And I mean, he was just totally taken aback watching him enjoy the experience brought back all the memories of us going, you know, when we were younger for that, those early days, especially that first time. So, yeah, no, very cool. And so this, I just, I love the song in its own right. It's just a, it's just, it's got a great melody. Like I say, it pays tribute to all of those classic B films, and it's a perfect way to uh, to start the film. Yeah, no, without question. All right. So, 
And that was another example where I knew I did not have to include the song because I knew you would have it. You can't do Halloween-themed horror films and not include Rocky Horror. It's not a horror film uh, itself, but definitely a send-up of the genre. All right, my next one. Speaking of films that are not necessarily categorized as horror, I give you a song that comes from a musical from 1952. <laughs> it's actually Singing in the Rain by Gene Kelly. I did not pull it for the classical, uh, the classic musical. I picked, pulled it because of its use in A Clockwork Orange. Although some people would argue some, that the original Gene Kelly is a horror to watch if you're not into classic <laughs> well, Hollywood musicals. That's true, true. And I know a lot of people that will, will you know, they, they will go red-faced, you know, insisting that A Clockwork Orange is a horror film. Oh, um, I think it is, 100%. You think so? I mean, definitely sci-fi, definitely science fiction. I, I see it. Well, I just, from the original source material as well, um, I, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I think it, it was really um, Anthony Burgess and, of course, then Stanley Kubrick's um, playing on the fear of the older generation, of, of, of the, the younger of generation, the generation, which is something that happens every generation. Right, and it, it's a common theme in films, everything from Children of the Corn to Village of the Damned to The Exorcist and The Omen. I mean, right, it's always right, that right. fear of the child. Yeah. I mean, it's in, if it's not in the horror genre in terms of what's laid out as the rules of what cons is considered horror, just in this scene, when they come into the, mm -hmm. the house and they terrorize that, that older couple, and, and it's just, it's, it's very frightening to me. Yeah, no, it, it is, and I know a lot of people... Um, I know, especially I've, I've talked to a, a lot of female viewers, uh, a friend of mine, that they they are actually they get very offended by the film because it's very misogynistic. Oh, of course, by de by design, right? You know, it, 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 You're but, not supposed to idolize these. Yeah, exactly. These <laughs> but they argue that there are a lot of men who love this movie to such an extent. That well, that, you know, that it, reminds me of that's Fight Club, right? Same thing. Fight Club is same an excellent thing. film. Unfortunately, it's been co-opted by a lot of uh, misogynists and incels out there on the internet who did not get the point of the satire it, at all. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, in fact, the two films I think go hand in hand. Yeah. I mean, they're very similar. Well, let, let's talk about Singing in the Rain for a moment. Uh, the song has become synonymous with the movie. Okay, from 1952 starring Gene Kelly um, his his performance in that film is just jubilant you know and he, he's there during the downpour and he's just having the time of his life it was written however the song two decades earlier um, Arthur Freed was originally inspired to write the lyrics for this when he um, when he saw from a Seattle sheet music shop a man saturated by rain dancing past his shop window 
so Nasio Herb Brown, a composer who often worked with Freed on MGM musicals, wrote the music, and the song actually debuted in one of the first musical sound films called Hollywood Review, 1929. And it was a huge hit, actually, for Star Cliff Edwards. Um, some years later, Arthur Freed was then a producer for MGM. He wanted to increase the revenue from his old lyrics, so he commissioned Betty Comden and Adolph Green to construct a musical around his songs, which became the film Singing in the Rain. Gene Kelly, along with Debbie Reynolds and, and Donald O'Connor, they star as, uh, well, Gene Kelly, rather. He stars as, as a silent film star struggling with the transition to talkies. Kelly was actually sick with a cold when he performed this famous rain-drenched dance number in the movie over two days while struggling with a fever of 103 degrees. Um, and, you know, a long-standing math math <laughs> a long-standing myth um, actually claims that the rain was made up of a blend of water and milk to make sure it showed up on camera but Kelly attributes the effect to clever backlighting so I do not know I imagine it wouldn't smell great yeah and, milk uh, exactly uh, singing in the rain it was well received but it was not an instant classic moviegoers were still buzzing about Kelly's popular musical from the year before which was an American in Paris that had just taken home the Academy Award for Best Picture uh, Singing in the Rain received two nominations at the following year's ceremony, but, uh, well, for Best Supporting Actress and Best Musical Score, but neither won. The song itself, this, this blew me away. This song has been used in several movies, including, just to give you a few, North by Northwest, Die Hard, and What About Bob? But it makes this list, as I said, because of its use and Stanley Kubrick's Clockwork Orange. Uh, the Gene Kelly recording plays over the cr closing credits, but early in their f earlier in the film, Malcolm McDowell's Alex sings the tune as he and his droogs, as you say, carry out the brutal home invasion. And, of course, there's that, that horrific rape scene that is a part of it all. Uh, it still terrifies those watching the film today. In, in the years since, McDowell has recalled... Um, in, in many interviews, how he jumped up and he, he improvised that entire thing. He just jumped up and started singing, singing in the rain as an improv. And he said on the beat, slapping, kicking, boom. He said, why did I do that? Well, according to him, singing in the rain is Hollywood's gift to the world of euphoria. And McDowell said that was what the character of Alex is feeling at the time. So he just, he just off of, off the cuff, just started singing Singing in the Rain. Kubrick was so taken by McDowell's performance that he shoved the actor into the car and they drove back to his house and he immediately purchased the rights to the song. At least this is what Kubrick told McDowell. <laughs> because shortly after the film's premiere, McDowell found himself snubbed by Gene Kelly at a Hollywood party. And he later learned from Kelly's widow that Kubrick, in fact, did not pay for the song oh. rights. So, you know, shame on Kubrick. Um, can't can't fault him too much though. He's going to show up later. Uh, oh yeah, for for me. But yeah. Um, yeah, it's it is just one of those scenes that has become so iconic, and just you know, just McDowell singing singing in the rain with such joy as he's committing these vile acts. It's it is to me. It's truly horrifying whether yeah. you define or categorize it as horror or not. So yeah, it fits our theme of taking an ordinary song the, and, and juxtaposition the juxtaposition of that song with the horror on screen. Right. We have several of those, of course, today to talk about. So yep. All right. Good pick. Good pick. All right. My next one is "Don't Fear the Reaper" by Blue Oyster Cult. 
was used, and that was 1976 when the song came out, and it's been used in several movies, um, including The Stand, which we'll talk about today, um, Halloween, and Scream. Now, this one, of course, lends itself because the song, the lyrics themselves. Um, well, let me put it this way. When I was a kid, this song seemed really, really dangerous to me. Really dangerous to me. It had, the band had cult in the title, right? The <laughs> right. album cover featured Hooded Druids. Yep. And the song was, to me at least, about committing suicide. Uh, yeah, and that's how I interpreted it. Yeah. But and if you remember, there, there was a real paranoia in, in the early 80s about Satanism in oh, yes. pop culture. Whether it be heavy metal bands, Dungeons and Dragons, and other role playing games, I mean, it just—it it seemed like there was just this really—I just paranoia. I guess there's no other <laughs> way to say it. And of course, they touch on that in the most uh, recent uh, Stranger Stranger Things. things. Yeah, right. I was just going to say season four. But um, Buck Dharma, who uh, is the nickname of, of, of the uh, lead man who penned the song uh, and for Blue Oyster Cult, said it's not at all about suicide. And I, I've heard in the years since that it's not, but I, that is how I interpreted it. And I, yeah. I, I still... Because of the Romeo and Juliet. Romeo and Juliet, line, yeah, exactly. Right? It was really just about his kind of fear of dying young. That's, that's at least that's how, how the song started. But then it's counterbalanced by this idea of everlasting love, so that we die young, but that our love lives on forever. So the fact that Romeo and Juliet committed suicide makes us feel like he's encouraging people to commit suicide so they can be together forever. But he was just using it as an example of how love can withstand death. I, it's coming from the artist, so I'll take take it take him <laughs> at his word. But to me, that 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 verse, I don't know. It's still very yeah. You know, um, the forty thousand men and women every day. Mm -hmm. What does that number actually? Did you look this? Yeah, up? The, the number is was to men. How, how many people die every single day? That's just a figure for the number of deaths. Yes, I don't know if that's. In, I, I didn't look to see that, if that would be worldwide or just within the United States. Okay, I was going to say that feel, it feels to me like that has to be USA. It has only. to be, but but he was actually by off uh, by about ten thousand. Okay, because uh, he says forty thousand, right? In right, the song, yeah. and yeah. at the time the death rate was was fifty thousand, so he was a little bit off. But yeah, I, I, it had to be had to, it has to be United States, right? Uh, yeah, think be without question. Worldwide. Yeah, because. Uh, in my mind, because it plays during the Romeo and Juliet verse, mm -hmm. you know, that line, 40,000 men and women in every, every day, I just always kind of assumed, I guess, that globally that was a statistic for the number of suicides. Yeah, and it's not. And a lot of people interpret that way. But okay. he said, no, he, that was not the number of suicides, it's the number of, of deaths. Okay. Learned so, something new. Yeah, okay. Yeah. So the song was used in Halloween um, when Jamie Lee Curtis is being, um, actually she's not being stalked, she's in the... Um, She's in the car with her friend. I think she, they're, they're smoking a little Mary Jane, and the song's on the radio. So it's really not a prominent use of the song other than it just kind of plays on the radio and people that know the song, because the song was 76. I believe the movie was 78. So people would be able to associate the creepiness of the song itself. So it's almost the opposite. It's the song, the creepiness of the song, right. inspiring and trying to get you ready uh, for the film. Um, but I think it's, it's probably most remembered uh, in a horror sense for the opening scene of, of Stephen King's adaptation of The Stand which to me is maybe the greatest television miniseries. Right. There are still elements of it that feel like a TV movie, but really for the budget that they had and the star power that they got to um, um, act in the film, just really make it wonderful. Yeah. And well, we should clarify, we're talking about the first. Yes, yes. The, the, the miniseries uh, from 1994 on CBS. Right. Yeah. There was a reboot on CBS's Paramount um, which, what, a couple years ago. Yeah, which... Um 
Have you seen the reboot? I watched the first episode, maybe the second, and it wasn't that I just put it this way. As a huge fan of the book, you know, it's my second favorite Stephen King book, and as a huge fan of the original miniseries, um, I wasn't disappointed, but I was kind of hoping for more. For more. Yeah. So I didn't stop watching because I, I mean, I will finish it, but it didn't hook me enough to just binge it. Yeah. Um, you know, and when you do finish watching it, I'd, I'd love to, t- to really discuss it with you. I, they do a number of things very well, and they do a number of things just very poorly. Okay. I, I'm, and the, the the casting is very uneven. I, I did not like uh, did not like a lot of the casting choices in the, in the newer one. Uh, but the original from '94 that that you're referencing, and yeah, they they actually had a pretty powerful line of. Uh, A-listers at that yeah. point. I mean, Molly Ringwald and Gary Sinise are, are you know, the the two leads. Of, well, you have of, you have uh, uh, Nick Lowe was played by well, I can't think of his name. Uh, bad boy, Brad Pack, um, Rob Lowe. Uh, Rob, Rob Lowe. Yeah, Rob Lowe. Um, who's the guy who played Tom? Who was from? Um, I believe he was from Coach. Yeah, he was. I, I can't think of his I name. I can't either. think of the actor's name. But, but yeah, it was a lot of star power um, for a TV miniseries, and it's it, it, and that was the. You see, I think at that point, just about every single Stephen King work that, that was out had, had had a cinematic version or, or one in the works. And in fact, I think King even talks about in his. All right, let's go back a second. So the Stand was originally written, and I think it was King's maybe third or fourth work, and the publishers felt it was way too uh, big because uh, yeah. it was over a thousand pages right. for the mass market. He hadn't quite earned Stephen King's status yet to be able to write whatever he wants as long as he wants. Which sometimes it's good to have an editor because you know. But the the actual the original Stand once King finally got that notoriety, he convinced the book company to to re-release it. Um, with I think it was sometime in the mid 80s with the full text at the time the film had not been made and he talks about in the introduction about why it's so difficult to film because it's such a, an epic scope yeah and and who are some of the actors in fact he he wanted to see Bruce Springsteen play Larry Underwood which would would have been fantastic yeah it would have been awesome so I think when they finally decided okay we can't do this in, a, in an hour and a half or two hours so we're gonna have to make it a miniseries then there was a lot of anticipation I think probably a lot of the stars signed on because they knew this is going to be very special. Yeah. No, I agree. You know, I, I always wished that there had been a cinematic film for, for the stand. I mean, the miniseries. I mean, you can do it. Well, you can if you divide it into oh, if you two, did a, two, three films. Okay, you know? I understand um, if you did Just, that. you know, just make, turn it into, I don't, I don't know that you need a trilogy, but just, you know, the the first half of the book is they're making their way, you know, to the, to the two various camps, and then the second film would be the the power struggle between good and evil. That's true. I was hoping CBS was going to do a Game of Thrones style and have seven seasons. Oh, that would have been incredible. That's what I was hoping for. Maybe that's why I was disappointed because I expected season one just to kind of get into the, right. the story a little bit when I realized it, it was simply just a miniseries. I was a yep. little disappointed. Now, I will say that Randall Flagg has never had on television or in film a casting choice that I felt was truly... Yeah, I didn't like Jamie Sheridan in the miniseries. No, That's one, one of the things all. I fault. And, you know, even... Um, Skarsgård plays it in the... Yeah, Skarsgård, and he's just miscast. Yeah. He, he's one of those yeah. one of those that I was saying is just... Ter- I thought he might be miscast. good in that role, but... He could have been. Yeah. I think it's the way that they present him. Okay. Um, he's he's just too... He's too clean cut. I mean, he's yeah. too pretty, right. you know? Um, I... I, I Plus, I look at him and I just think True Blood, which I know I don't, sure. I don't think you've ever watched. No, but I, I know that. But he, you know, he played uh, 
he was a prominent character. Um, but yeah, I, I just have, I would love to see the right, now Matthew McConaughey, when, when he was, for in Dark Tower. For the Dark Tower. I didn't like his performance either. Yeah, I did not like his performance, but he was the closest in look yeah. in, in my mind. Of course, the Dark Tower was just a, a nightmare film in and of itself for a number of reasons. But See, to me, Randall Flagg should be someone that, that's almost not a shapeshifter, right? Right. But looks vanilla enough that he can blend in anywhere because that's Flagg's thing, right? Yeah, no, and that I agree. Yeah. And, and so I think everyone's tried to make him too much of a sinister villain when he should just look, look like an ordinary, yeah. almost like, like Ben from Lost, right? Yeah. Where you think yeah. he's just this kind of ordinary person and you don't realize what he's capable of. Um, of course, he's described in The Stand, that version of Randall Flagg is kind of the, the longer-haired, denim-wearing Correct. Uh, Randall Flagg. But he appears, of course, in Eyes and the Dragon and in the Dark Tower. In fact, and this probably will never happen, but I wanted to see a Marvel-scale Stephen King universe at some point. I was really hoping for that. When, when it was popular and, and The Stand was announced, I thought, wow, they can cast some of these parts that appear in multiple Stephen King books. Yeah. And you could just have the same character playing Flag in all of these. I, I want to. I really want to see a Dark Tower Game of Thrones treatment, right? Oh, where each book is a, is a season. Definitely, yeah, I think there's still hope for that. But there's a lot there to work with when you, especially when you pull in the Dark Tower. Yeah. Well, and you know, if they ever do a Game of Thrones treatment of the Dark Tower, you're going to have to incorporate a whole lot of other texts. Just, I think for for background, not not in their entirety, but like. Father Callahan, right? You know how how I mean, but there's a version of Salem's Lot coming, out, a new version, like that, the fourth version's coming yeah, out. Yeah, that's here. that's true. It's and that one's actually and that's how be, Marvel does it, right? Yeah. They do the backstories of all the different major right. characters, and then they all appear in the films. And yeah, you could totally do that with King. No, that's true. So. Anyway, gonna, we're going to be talking Stephen King a lot we, on this episode. Yeah, so apologize. Uh, and like you say, when we, we, we're we long enough when we talk just about music. But I if know. You, but if you pull in <laughs> movies here, this one's going to go long. So the, the song also gained notoriety uh, for the next generation when it, when the recording was lampooned on Saturday Night Live, of course. Oh, uh, yeah, more cowbell. You haven't seen more cowbell. Christopher Walken plays the producer uh, of, of the song, and the, the recording studio is set up. And in fact, this one... this. They usually um, produce one or two sketches that don't always make the cut, depending on how long the show runs. Right. And this was one that, one that almost got cut, and, and they ended up uh, using it at the last minute. And, of course, now it's one of the most you know, widely seen uh, sketches uh, of Saturday Life history. But Christopher Walken comes over as the producer, and he's listening to the playback on the track. And something just isn't right. He just needs cowbell. More cowbell. And that's where <laughs> Will Ferrell comes out with ill-fitting clothes. I think it's just like this really short sweater, his guts hanging out. Yep. And he's happy to oblige um, by <laughs> performing more more cowbell. So that's a classic if you haven't seen it. And then don't forget about the acoustic version by Gus Black uh, that was used in Scream. I almost used that version because it's, it's, it's really creepy in its own right. It is. Uh, so check it out. It'll be on the mentioned songs list on our Spotify playlist on, on GenXMixtape.com. Um, so, uh, that one, I don't know, I can't say I almost prefer it, but it's one of those that would have been perfect for a cover uh, episode. Where yeah. it, somebody, an artist, takes a song, covers it, and, and makes it their own. I actually, I, I was, I loved the Beatles uh, episodes this season so much. Next season, I want to do something yeah, more right. with, with covers. With covers yeah. Not sure what yet, but I, I love covers if they're done well. Yeah, you know? definitely. Um, okay, that, you know. that's all. I mean, I could go on, but well, I can't. <laughs> right. <laughs> so yeah. Ahead. All right. Well, my <laughs> my third track for this episode. Um, it comes from Queen, and it is titled, Don't Stop Me Now. Tonight, I'm 
gonna have myself a real good time. I feel alive. Freddie Mercury wrote the song, both words and music, in Montreux, Switzerland. Uh, it, it finds him feeling unstoppable. He's floating around in ecstasy like a tiger defying the laws of gravity and traveling at the speed of light. Uh, the song is actually quite empowering. Well, you but know what it's originally about, right? I know okay. exactly. I know exactly what it's about. Yes, uh, it's also clear that Mercury is throwing caution to the wind and putting himself in danger. You know, I am a satellite. I'm out of control. I am a sex machine ready to reload. I, I know exactly what this song is about, yeah. Um, after Mercury died of AIDS-related causes in 91, it became clear that his hedonism during this period caught up with him. And and Brian May, he's actually told Mojo that he, he struggled with the lyrics because it was about a detrimental time in Mercury's life when he was taking lots of drugs and having sex with lots of men. Uh, Brian May shared his thoughts on the song, though, um, he said, I thought it was a lot of fun, but I did have an undercurrent feeling of, aren't we talking about danger here? Because we were worried about Freddie at that point. The The feeling lingers, but it's become almost the, the most successful queen track as regards to what people play in their car or at their weddings. It's become a, a massive, massive track and an anthem to people who want to be hedonistic. It was kind of a stroke of genius from Freddie is what Brian May has said. I, I used it as my, my wake-up alarm song for a while, but then I, I was afraid of getting sick of the song, and I was afraid of associating the song with bad things, like having to wake up at 6 a.m. Right, yeah. <laughs> So I stopped, but it's a great one to get the blood flowing. Oh, it is. And it's, you know, I as a DJ, I don't play this often at weddings, but when I'm testing my levels... This is always the song I go That's for when I'm fun. testing my levels. Um, and, and, of course, they portray in the, in the biopic, um, which was uh, Bohemian Rhapsody, Oscar winning film right um, they portray that period of, of Freddie's life when he's living in the apartment and they just can't get through to him and right. he's kind of uh, I forget who his partners at the time kind of controls him yeah I'm, it was it was the manager right it was his manager that eventually I believe so um, steers him into a solo career ill-fated solo career and uh, did not have his best interest in mind correct um, yeah Bohemian Rhapsody you know that film I did not dislike Bohemian Rhapsody but 
I, I still had problems. I, they, they took... They took a lot of liberties. They, well, that, that uh, first of all, the, the chronology is all wrong. Right, you right. Know, The timeline of events is not as it's depicted. Especially with Live Aid and when he knew he had AIDS yeah, and all of that. Yeah, exactly. But they also, trying to make it a more family-friendly film, and, and they, you know, even with the themes that were presented, it's still a family-friendly version. They, they took Freddy's very X-rated life and made it very PG-13. Well, they, they alluded to it. They I mean, did. I suppose they if did. you knew, you knew, right? Yeah, yeah. And, and kids I, I, would I'm, not pick up on yeah, it. Yeah, and I'm not suggesting that they needed to be, you know, gratuitous on screen. But I, I don't know. I never felt like Freddy was truly, you know, out of control watching the movie. Right. You know, and I'm like, you really... I felt he was lost. He lost. Oh, definitely lost. But I, I really feel like, you know, they, they should have made it a bit more graphic in... Very purposefully, very deliberately. Yeah, I can see that. More, more graphic to, to give it a truer account. But what movie does this come from? Uh, I haven't, or is it used I, in? Or used yeah, yeah, in. Yeah, yeah, I yeah. haven't actually said that right, yet. Right. Uh, the song is a plot point in the 2004 movie Shaun of the Dead. And for my money, it is one of the most brilliantly choreographed moments in horror cinema. Because when they are armed with pull cues and just... Well, not only that, but using the pu- the the cue pull, the pull cues. There we go. Um, in, in syncopation. Yeah, well, that's with what the music. That's what I'm saying. It's it's just brilliant. I mean, it's like perfectly choreographed. Um, you know, well, let's take a step back. There may be people out there that have not seen the film. If Which, by the way, is my second favorite zombie film after Dawn of the Dead. This is my this is my number one. Shaun of the Dead wins every time. Um, if you've not seen this film, this is a movie you must. See, it, it is a, it is a horror film, but it is very comedic. It's a, it's a satire. Yeah, it's a satire. There are a lot of comedic moments. Um, the language gets pretty rough <laughs> if you're easily offended by by you know f bombs. But basically, this this song plays out during a zombie attack, and it plays on the jukebox at, at just this very inopportune time. And while some of the characters try to fight off the zombie with the the pull cues, like like Dave and I were just discussing, another is attempting to quote unquote kill the queen yeah. to, to silence the song. You know, and it's just he catches himself. Well, not the queen. I mean, the song. Right. Yeah. But it, it's it's brilliant, uh, and it's just. In uh, any fight scene with zombies in a pub, right? What type of weapons do you have? You have pool cues. You have bottles on the shelf. You have the shotgun above the bar. And, and then darts, of course. Yeah, darts. <laughs> yeah. Uh, which, yeah, the entire scene is just, it's it's golden. If you haven't seen the whole, I think they call it the, the Blood and Ice Cream trilogy, right? Shaun of the Dead and right. Hot Fuzz and then um, uh, uh, End of the World. End of the World. Yeah, just great stuff. It is. Simon Pegg is just a genius. I, I, I can't get enough of this character. Um but Shaun of the Dead, yeah, it is just, I knew from the moment they were trying to attack the zombie in their backyard that I was going to love this film because they pull out the case of record albums. Yes. <laughs> and they're, they're trying to debate what to fling at the zombie. And, you know, of course, record albums are not going to have any effect at all, but that is part of the charm of it. But they're arguing as the zombie is approaching them which albums they can there to lose and which they can't and when Purple Rain is chosen you know Sean just flat out refuses he cannot use Purple Rain lose Purple Rain to, to defend his his life um, no it's a great film and yeah don't stop me now it's just every time I, I think I don't even have to see it every time I think of that scene I just I, I just bust out in, in a huge belly laugh I, I love 
Love this movie. It's a great example of how songs, classic songs, take on a whole new life for a whole another generation. Yes. Obviously, Journeys Don't Stop Believing was a prime example of that. But here's another example of that. Because Queen fans knew this song, but I would say, what, what early 2000s, Shaun of the Dead? Uh, yeah. I think it is. Yeah. So in the early 2000s, your average probably pop culture consumer, especially the younger generation, had not heard this song. And so now, of course, it, it has this whole new life. Yeah, yeah. It was two thousand four. Okay. Oh, and speaking, of, I remembered the the director of Rocky Horror. I know this is, you know, yeah. a while ago, but it, I, I just remembered it's Jim Sharman. Okay. Jim Sharman. Okay. Um. So yeah, that that was not. I know Lou Adler man. helped produce it, but I didn't yeah. think he was involved. Yeah, Jim in Sharman was the director. I just it just came back to me. Um, your turn. All right. <laughs> this next one. <laughs> If we were doing a, a song of, a, a playlist, I should say, of just songs that are creepy in their own right, without any context whatsoever, this one might be at the top of the list. This one's just painful. <laughs> I chose Tiptoe Through the Tulips with Me by Tiny Tim from 1968, which appeared in the film Insidious. remember my parents talking about Tiny Tim when I was a kid. Of course, I was confused a little bit because I knew Tiny Tim from Dickens' A Christmas Carol. Right, yeah. And how strange he was. And I don't know if there was a clip on television or I don't know how. I just remember this stuck in my brain, one of the earliest instances of my parents talking about pop culture. And, you know, they, they mentioned the song, Tiptoe to the Tulips, like it was some drugged out novelty tune. Turns out they were right. <laughs> <laughs> Tiny Tim performed this ukulele-driven cover. Uh, the original was recorded in 1929. Oh, yeah. On the premiere of uh, the premiere episode of, of uh, Laughing in 1968. Somehow in 1968, I'm assuming by the power of, of the show and the success of the show, the song reached number 17. Which... I can't imagine anyone listening to this song in the radio, on the it's, radio. It's unfathomable, <laughs> yes. This uh, this one song, like I said, is creepy enough to be uh, creepy without the help of, of placement in the 2010 horror film Insidious. And I remember when that film was released, and of course we were teachers, so we were teaching at the time, and how it hit the younger generation. And my students, middle school students, were singing this song in the hallway, and I had not seen the film yet. And I'm like, what is going on? Why are all the kids singing yep. Tip Throw to the, tul- to the Tulips? And so I asked one of my students and they said oh from insidious and, and so then it, it, it made sense but uh, what a creep have you seen Insidious? oh, oh yeah yeah the red demon sharpening his claws yeah. to the tune it's a great film yeah yeah i <laughs> um yeah that's the first time that i i heard this song i had a k-tel record album i, I was probably 
I don't know. I couldn't have been more than six or seven. And um, but I had I had a K-Tel. It was called um, Goofy Greats. Oh, okay, yeah. And it it was it was just a collection of novelty songs. You know, I mean, it, the first song on the album was Rubber Ducky. And then it went into Monster Mash. I mean, it was just novelty tunes. But this song was on that album. And I remember the very first time I listened to it, I did. I don't think I got more than more than 30 seconds into the song and I just, I lifted the needle. <laughs> I mean, it was just, it was just so disturbing to me. And it, it, it was eerie. I mean, I wasn't frightened of the song. It was just one of those things that I just did not enjoy listening to. And, and that is happened so rarely in my life I can usually find some some positive you know re- redeeming quality to any song but but Tiptoe Through the Tulips is just it's strange though because oh, it awesome. wasn't originally a novelty tune no it, it was it, it becomes a novelty tune because Tiny Tim really didn't change much about other than the arrangement and the performance of it so more, I think just if you haven't seen Tiny Tim he's this really tall guy with this like long stringy right. hair and he, he himself looks a little bit creepy I know you can't help that but and he um, looks like Riff Raff yeah. <laughs> from Rocky and so Horror. I think it's the whole context of it that they decide to use it and laugh in but again I don't, I don't see the humor maybe it's a generational thing because I know Gen Z doesn't find the humor in, in Seinfeld and things that in Airplane right. that you find hilarious but I just can't see like putting this on in the car and just laughing at it because it's just it's just ridiculous and, and, and really really creepy yeah and, and that was my my response on, on that Ktel record right. because everything else I appreciated the humor. I even if it wasn't laugh out loud funny, I, I saw the the humorous intent. This song was just uncomfortable yeah. to, to listen to. So now we we have an, an old Edison phonograph. So it's probably about a hundred years old, and, and it was passed down through my wife's family. It still works, um, not very well, but it still works. And we put these these. Uh, I don't know if it's acetate or what, what, the, what the material. They're really thick records, um, very heavy, and you put them on, and it's just instant horror movie fodder, the sound that comes out of this thing. Oh, I bet. I mean, I, I should grab an audio sample. It's just crazy creepy. And so you can see how any of these old tunes um, that would have been recorded on this by this method, going back and listening to, just inspires, to me, horror, not, not, not humor. That's why I think it's just really right, strange. Right, yeah. But it works perfectly. And there'll be other examples of that as we talk about it. But that one is um, Tip Through the Tulips, which yeah. I never, ever in a million years thought we'd ever feature on Gen X Mixtape. <laughs> I never thought we'd want to. Uh, so, all right. Well, my next one, uh, it is the opening theme music to the 2014 film, What We Do in the Shadows, uh, as well as the theme music to the television series that is now uh, on FX and loosely based on that film. It is the 1966 song You're Dead and it's performed by experimental folk pop singer-songwriter Norma Tanega. Don't sing if you want to live long They have no use for your song You're dead, you're dead, you're dead You're dead and out of this world You'll never get a second chance Plan all your moves in advance Stay dead, stay dead, stay dead Stay dead and out of this world Run fast, don't stand in the sun There's too much work to be done You're down, you're down, you're down You're down and out of this world 
it's not often that I find an artist that I've not heard of. I had no idea who this was. And she actually, she has a, a very colorful history. Um, I just know, I know her past with Dusty Springfield. That's about all that yeah, I know. Yeah, and that's all I knew too. Uh, Tanega actually had a hit single in 1966 with Walkin' My Cat Named Dog. And that song, it peaked at number 22 on the Hot 100. It, it hit number three in Canada. Uh, the song catapulted Tanega into the spotlight and that led to her debut album of the same name, a spot on American Bandstand and a tour with acts like Chad and Jeremy and Gene Pitney. On that album was the song You're Dead. But of course, it, it was never released as a single and uh, I, I would argue very few people had ever heard of it. Well, and I'm shocked. I even went back and watched a YouTube clip of her performance in 1966. I, I just don't see how this wasn't specifically written for the movie. And that's my thing. Like when, when you know, we now have... It doesn't sound like a 1966 no, not, song. No, not at all. And in fact, yeah, it, it's very much like our, our new theme for our, for our podcast because you've made the... You, you've mentioned that it's almost like we commissioned... Yes, You know, yes. Wally Pleasant to record a song for us for our, our podcast. Um, much the same thing. I was... This was an example, just my own ignorance, but I assumed that this song was written for the film. Right. And it's so perfect. It is so spot on. And it is so, yeah, you're right. It, it does not sound like it, it comes from the mid-60s. This, right. this very much sounds like it's a song that would be recorded by an indie artist yeah. today. She was, she, I believe she was from California. She was Filipino. Um. She was um, She was born to a Panamanian mother and, okay. a, fil and a Filipino father. Okay, right. Uh, she, she was a queer woman of color. Um, and she was... She did end up in Greenwich Village um, in, in the 1960s. She was navigating a, a Greenwich Village folk scene that already prided itself on being very counterculture, despite being full of white men of middle-class backgrounds. Um, and and Tanega, as you said, she met Dusty Springfield on the set of Thank Your Lucky Stars in England, and the two of them had a, a five- or six-year relationship where, where they lived together in Kensington, London. Um, Tanega during that time painted, she played music, she wrote many songs that Springfield recorded. Um, and and most of those were then released as B-sides to some of Dusty's biggest singles. Uh, the 1971 album, uh, I Don't Think It Will Hurt If You Smile, by Norman Tanega, that was her second release, uh, it's supposedly filled with references to her relationship with Springfield uh, throughout the album. After Tanega's... Uh, time in the spotlight faded she spent the last 40 some years of her life in Claremont California and it was there that she established herself as a fixture in the LGBTQ plus community uh, she spent those years teaching ESL at, at the local adult school she taught art at Cal Poly Pomona she uh, she published several art books um, it, it's really a shame you know reading about her that, that so few people know her music today She's faded into obscurity. She's become one of those footnotes in, in popular music. But that is changing because the use of You're Dead as the theme song to what we do in the shadows, um, mostly from the television series. Still very few people have seen the film, which is a well, shame. Well, they should. Yeah. They absolutely should. But uh, it's renewed interest in her music. Sales of her debut album, that first album, they continue. Walking a Cat Named Dog? Yeah. They, they continue to, to go up. But what we do in the shadows... Folks, if you have not seen this film or if you've not seen the television show, 
you you must. It's it's in the vein of The Office and Parks and Rec, but features yeah. vampires. Yeah, it's, and they're familiar. And it's just the the camera crew following along and, and <laughs> capturing them in, in any number of uh, mishaps. It, it's just it's brilliant. And the best part of the swear wolves. I, I'm sorry, I love the swear wolves. And supposedly they were going to make a film, just a swear wolves film. But I, I don't think that. Uh, They've done that yet. When we watched the movie for the first time, or the TV series, I don't remember which, but my wife said, okay, this is right up your alley, humor-wise. She knows knows my wheelhouse, and it hit perfectly. Yeah, it's brilliant. So, yeah, I I had to include, I love the song, and I... I I haven't watched season four yet, by the way. Oh, yeah, I haven't started season four yet, uh, either. But, yeah, this is just one of those songs, I didn't know if Spotify would have it, because I assumed it was written for the film, and I did not know if they had the film soundtrack, and lo and behold, no, yeah. this is... I had no idea it was This done. is a song I from, heard. from yeah, from, what, 50, 50 years ago? 50, 50 plus. 50 yeah, plus, 50, yeah. 55. So, yeah. but no, had to include it. So, love the movie. Good choice. Good choice. All right, my next one was written specifically for the film. And this is my second. I think half of our picks in some way relate to Stephen King. Oh, yeah. Which definitely. isn't a surprise, being Stephen King fans. This is Pet Cemetery by... The Ramones from 1989, from of course the first film attempt at uh, Pet Cemetery. King, you know, he's Mr. Pop Culture, right? He's, he's not ashamed to uh, display his pop culture cred. Uh, he, in fact, for a while there, he had a column in uh, Entertainment Weekly, which was very, very entertaining. Uh, a lot of times, I enjoy his intros to his books as much as the books, because he's just very, very <laughs> yeah. good at discussing pop culture. He really is. And he's a huge rock fan, um, loves the Ramones, loves ACDC, which we'll talk about later. He's very eclectic in his music, but he really has a passion for just hard-driving rock. We'll, we'll, we'll call it rock, even though, you know, like Billy Joel, it's still rock and roll to me, even though there's punk, metal, whatever. We'll just, we're just going to call it rock. Yep. And the band was playing in New England in the mid-'80s, and this is what I love about, you know, if you were a celebrity, I would love the chance of just, you know, you're a celebrity, someone that you likes in town, you invite them over to your house, and they come. <laughs> and King invited the Ramones to come over to his house in Bangor, Maine, and they hung out. That's just to be a fly on the wall for that would have been incredible. And for some reason, he handed Ramones bassist D.D. Uh, Ramone a copy of the novel Pet Cemetery, and this is so D.D. He, he went down to the basement with a copy of the novel and came back up hours later with the lyrics to this song. Huh. <laughs> And Ramon's drummer, Marky Ramon, the second drummer of the Ramon, said that the King and Dee Dee were very, very similar. And then they both wrote about the, quote, curiosity, fears, and insecurities that people can relate to. 
And when I go back and listen to some of the, the songs that were penned by Didi, I can see that. Hmm. They were very, very accessible, I guess, to the common man, common person. And so it worked. Um, the video, if you remember, was shot in Sleepy Hollow Cemetery in New York. I was just there a couple weeks ago. Yep, I've been there. So it was really, really cool to be there. I don't couldn't tell exactly where the Ramones were were standing during that part. Well, there are two parts. The one part of the video, they're just walking around um, the cemetery. Yeah. There's another part where it's a fake cemetery, and all sorts of cast members show up, and it's a typical Ramones kind of out of control video, including Deborah Harry, by the way, is one of the cameos in that. Um, Although the, the song charted high on several genre charts, not, not the Hot 100, but it did well on the modern rock tracks, uh, charts and so forth, it also earned a Razzie in 1989 for Worst Original Song. <laughs> so it just depends on where you're coming from. Now, in context, it's the Ramones, right? It's a song written about a horror film which, you know, it, it, it's made in the, in the B tradition. I'm not going to say it's a B film, but it's made in that tradition. And it's pretty close. It is what it is. Yeah. It, so I think it's great for what it is. And of course, it was remade. Did you watch the remake? I did. a few years ago. It, it was okay. It had some nice twists. I from the original. I loved. I was not expecting the, the right. flip right, right, in, right, in right. the children. Yeah. I, there were parts of the new one I really, really enjoyed. The only thing I didn't like was Lithgow's character. Oh yeah. I didn't. Yeah. Well, I, no one's going to replace. Well, yeah. That's what I'm saying. I, I'd rather have Fred Gwynn any day, but. Yeah, I, I, I love this song. I think that it is catchy as hell. Frankly. Well, it's one of the, the highest uh, played on, on radio. I yeah. mean, obviously, Blitzkrieg Bop is played all the time, but this one, right. uh, and I Want to Be Sedated, is played a lot. In fact, uh, King also uses, uh, I believe it's uh, Judy as a punk rocker in the original uh, Pet Cemetery when the trucker is driving down the street oh, before it, yeah. before the scene. Right before And Gage. that's the song yeah. that he's listening to. And then King also appears, he's famous for making cameos in his movie like Hitchcock did. He, he plays the preacher. During at, the funeral during scene. During the yeah. Uh, yeah. funeral at the cemetery. So. Yeah. I, um, now, I, the scariest part of the first of that first adaptation. I know what though. you're going to say. It's, it's Zelda. Zelda. It's Zelda. Rachel. Yeah, I mean, that's just like the... I don't know. My wife will not watch that movie ever because again of because of Zelda. It it scared the hell out of her as a kid. She will not go near the original Pet Cemetery. See, see, King is strange in that, and and I want to say, pick your lane, Steve, because not everything that he tries turns to gold. Right. That's okay because he is so excellent at what he does. Yep. And that's writing narrative stories, narrative horror, science fiction, fantasy stories. I respect the fact that he tries to go out of that bounds a bit, and we'll talk about that more later on in the episode. And even his works being adapted, why is King so good? It's because of the inner monologue of his characters. It's because of the way that he can frame the world in his narrative. And you can't necessarily capture that on film. And that's why when some people kind of scoff at Stephen King a little bit, I'll say, did you actually ever read a Stephen King novel? Right. And those that actually do come back, and they're like, oh, wow, I had no idea. I mean, he is just an incredible storyteller. Yeah. Now, you have people like Frank Darabont, who's very successful in adapting his works, like Shawshank Redemption and Green Mile, uh, The Mist. Um, but so many of them were just not not great. Um, <laughs> and, and this yeah. is fun. Like I say, I'll watch Pet Cemetery as, as a B-fun movie, but, you know, it's not one of the great right. works in American cinema. Yeah. Oh, The Mist. That film adaptation oh, of The Mist. Well, King admitted just, he liked the ending better. Yeah. Oh, it's so much better than the, the story. Um, yeah. No, Stephen King, he is he is going to be remembered as probably the single greatest author of 
the late 20th century. Yeah. And it, he just will be. And he may not get the respect because genre authors don't. Like Ray Bradbury does not get the same respect as his contemporaries because he wrote science fiction Correct. and fantasy. Yeah. But, yeah, now King is, he's, they'll be reading King 200 years from now yep. easily. Um, and he, I think he's the best-selling author beyond the Bible. I mean, the Bible's obviously sold the most, but after that, the collected works of Stephen King right. are right behind the Agreed. Bible. But you're right, those internal monologues, I mean, on film, unless you are going to literally give a Shakespearean soliloquy, right. there's no way to capture that on film because the, the, the dialogue that a character or the monologue that the character has with him or herself in his books. And there are pages mm. of just internal thought that, that I mean, that is what he's best at. It right. just hands down. What he's not good at is editing himself. Writing, writing yeah. screenplays, directing. <laughs> Correct. And I'm sorry, I love Stephen <laughs> King and I've, I've read, I've not read everything. I know you have. I've, I've kind of, I've not been keeping up in the last maybe 10 years as much as I would like to, but his endings, he is not, and a lot of critics. Well, that's because he doesn't plan his books out ahead of time, which I can admire because very few authors can do that. Exactly. Sometimes the ending does suffer. Sometimes I think it's unfair, the criticism of some of the endings. And then, yeah, some of them deserve the criticism. Right. Yeah. And I I love Stephen King. His endings have never prevented me or stopped me from reading what comes next but but it's just but there, you, there you are read, some you read dark tower right oh yeah so as king said in the end of the the, the seventh book he pauses before yeah the he end actually it. stops and tells you not to read it and says so. okay if you're the kind of person that you know he talks about the journey he also uses a sexual reference which i won't get into but he said if, if you believe a story or life is about that end the very end you know, you may be disappointed, and that would go for a lot of his works. But if you're one that believes in the journey and the experiences that get you a certain point, yep. and that's how you have to look at Stephen King works. It's about that journey. It's not about just getting to the end and having this great moment at the end. It's about building to something. Yeah, agreed. Yeah, you bring up a great point. And, and actually, I really respected him for having done that in book seven. I was really impressed by that. The only, you know, very much in keeping with The Dark Tower, the one novel that I'm so, I just get so frustrated and so angry that it has not been turned into a film is The Talisman. It is. It's being, it's being made right is now. It be, yeah. It's being made? Yeah, there, there were versions for a while. There's, Chris, Chris has been floating around Hollywood now for four oh, yeah, years. Oh, yeah, I know. I know it, it has. Um, Ron Howard was attached to it at one point. Believe it or not, Will Smith was um, scheduled to play Wolf. That, I'm glad that's not happening. That was happening. about 10, 15 years <laughs> I'm ago. I'm very glad that's not happening. But I, they, it finally got a green light, and I can't tell you um, off the top of my head who um, is going to play the, the roles of Jack or Wolf, but um, yeah, it, it, within a year, I think it should be released. Oh, so. I hope not. I hope they do it justice, yes, though. Yes, um, because, That's another one where they just it was difficult to yeah, Oh, without question. Um, yeah, I didn't know that they were even... Yep in process mm-hmm. um, but like I say we can have this Marvel type cinematic universe could, with King yeah. if they start make, if these films do well and well and of course you know we had to mention Peter Straub in that equation oh, as yes, well of course, because of course. that was a joint effort by the two of them did you read the sequel uh, Black, Black House, House? Yeah. Yeah. yeah which of course ties into so the Dark Tower, the Dark Tower. Even, even more yeah I think it was his attempt to try to make it a little more solid in the Dark Tower universe agreed okay we gotta be careful this is a Stephen King podcast sorry folks um, your your pick. My my pick. All right. Well, this is not uh, Stephen King related. Um, I went with Run Rabbit Run. Now, this is a song that comes from 1932. 
and it was from a comedy duo known as Flanagan and Allen. On the farm, every Friday, on the farm, is rabbit pie day. So every Friday that ever comes along, I get up early and sing this little song. Run, rabbit, run, rabbit, run, run, run. Run, rabbit, run, rabbit, run, run, run. Bang, 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 goes the farmer's gun. Run, rabbit, run, rabbit, run, 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 run. Run, rabbit, run, rabbit, run, run, run. Don't give the farmer his fun, fun, fun. He'll get by. Without his rabbit pie So run, rabbit, run, rabbit, run, run, run Again, my ignorance, I had never heard of Flanagan and Allen, so I, I learned quite a bit here, and it's a really fascinating story. I'm going to try and do it quickly, because I know this episode's already running. That's okay. We, we warned everybody. We, we do, and, you know, it's Halloween-themed, so uh, stick with us. I mean, I'm hoping you'll stick with us. <laughs> but Run, Rabbit, Run... It was actually a popular song during World War II, and it achieved a level of cultural significance through the singing efforts of this British comedy singing duo. Uh, Flanagan and Allen, uh, they were part of the British entertainment group known as the Crazy Gang during the 1930s. It was here that the comedy singing duo actually worked on the production of the stage review called The Little Dog Laughed. Uh, like other reviews by the Crazy Gang, this production featured comedic songs and dances that poked fun at relevant issues at the time. One of these songs was Run, Rabbit, Run. And the music uh, for this particular song, it was made made by the famous British composer Noel Gay. Uh, he, he frequently worked with the Crazy Gang. Additionally, the lyrics were written by the songwriter Ralph Butler, who was specifically known to add comedic elements to his songs. And while listening to a song like Run, Rabbit, Run, one can identify the, the strange and even funny language being used to offer commentary on a very serious topic. This song was really very, it was all about the Second World War. Um, on first listen, the lyrics seem innocent enough. There's nothing about, you know, nothing about a farmer hunting a rabbit seems to answer why the song became such a popular anthem for the British during World War II. But in order to fully appreciate what Run, Rabbit, Run signified to the British, you first had to examine the historical context surrounding this very strange song. This, this fascinated me. Um, it's debatable, of course, what the song was originally intended to mean, but the cultural significance is rooted in what occurred just under one month after the song's premiere. On November 13th, 1939, the aerial warfare branch of the German military, known as the Luftwaffe, it targeted the British flying boats in Shetland. And the German bombs missed their target so, so badly that they ended up just creating a massive crater in Shetland, which, when checked by locals, revealed that two alleged victims died from the bombing. These two victims were rabbits, okay? Mm. They were aiming, the, the Germans were aiming for... Uh, <laughs> they, they were actually aiming for British flying boats. They end up killing 
two rabbits. Two rabbits. Okay. <laughs> so now I say alleged, however, because according to the Shetland Museum, the rabbits were not killed by the German bombs, but were instead transferred into the crater from a butcher shop in Lerwick as a publicity stunt. Uh, the suggestion here, though, is that, you know, basically the act was... The, the Germans, you know, aiming to bomb the British flying boats, all they were capable of doing was killing a couple of rabbits. And while the incident appears to be a hoax, it is credited for popularizing and giving new meaning to Flanagan and Allen's Run Rabbit Run. Uh, the dead rabbit hoax, it actually became a symbol of German ineptness. And this allowed Flanagan and Allen's song to be parodied in, in ways that mocked the Germans. Uh, parodies of Run Rabbit Run uh, served as propaganda then to ridicule the Germans, particularly Hitler, and to raise British morale. So Run Rabbit Run, it's, it's just this truly fascinating song, you know, as based on the lyrics. You would never guess that the song carried such significance in the wider conversation on World War II, but the song was likely tailored toward British optimism. And I would think that, you know, rather than being used solely for the purpose of boosting morale, it was intended also to be used as an assurance of German weakness. Uh, when the British would listen to the song, they'd be reminded that the Germans were so inept that in trying to, uh, you know, bomb British property, they missed and killed rabbits. And in, in this comedic interpretation of the German forces, the British would be encouraged to fight, knowing that the Germans could never win because they simply lacked the intelligence. Um, and I, I looked it up on YouTube. There are so many parodies of this song, all from that same era, that, that comes immediately following the hoax of the two rabbits in the crater. I had no... I, I, I had never heard of this. Mm -mm. And, and uh, Pink Floyd, uh, I think, pays homage to that in um, Breathe on, on yeah. uh, Dark Side of Dark the Moon. Dark Side of the Moon, yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah same, same thing. Now, it's used, I haven't talked about the movie, it's used in the first of Jordan Peele's, his debut film, uh, which was Get Out, which... He's so good. He's very good. Um, that movie, it's... It, I think it opened doors. Um, and it's certainly... Um, Jordan Peele, I, I give him props because he is making a ma he's making major, major inroads in Hollywood uh, cinema. You're talking politically because obviously oh, he's creating yeah. great stories, but he's doing it in Pol a way... Politically, yeah. ...to make statements. Exactly. As well. Yeah, Get Out was just brilliant. And I, I just... Now, I've, I've seen everything he's, he's made. Um, the new Candyman... Eh, I'm too much of a fan of the original. That's not a reboot that really worked for me, although he does finally use Sammy Davis Jr., which I always thought was missing from the, from the original. Um, but uh, Did us, they use the Philip Glass score as well? Or no. Not at all? No, okay. not at all. Um, no, he... That was he, a miss. Yeah, no, well, he, he has his own. The score is not bad yeah. for the new okay. one. Um, but it's not It's not Philip Glass. Um, us, I mean, and, you know, I'll just throw this out. That Jordan Peele is a master. He's very much like Tarantino because the songs that he picks are very deliberate and they are very, it's almost unexpected. They're, they're songs that the shelf life long expired. Right. And he's bringing these songs back to, to a new generation. Like Us, he used uh, Bill Withers' Just the Two of Us. Right, right. You know, um, in the newest one, Nope, which I saw not too long ago, um, he he brings Corey Hart's sunglasses at night, oh, wow. but it is it, basically because of the events of the film, the song can't play at its normal speed, uh, and it is creepy as hell. I almost went with that one. And is Spot, no, is Spotify nope good? Has it. Nope is nope is very good for what it is. I, I I did 
it's not what I expected going in to see the film, but in fairness, I don't know what I was expecting uh, because I, I really you shouldn't go into a Jordan Peele fi- film expecting, expecting anything. anything. Yeah, agreed. I, I guess it was. It is a fantastic story, but it wasn't. It wasn't a horror film in in the way that I had imagined. Gotcha. It, um, but they also in uh, in the newest one in Nope, one of the characters. He he speaks the lyrics to the purple, the purple flying people eater. Yeah, the one eyed, the one eyed, one horn flying purple people, people eater. eater. Yeah, um, and uh, just that spoken word uh, rendition of it, that too is creepy as hell. And Spotify has both; because they have the soundtrack. Well, this is a great example, like in Insidious, of using this old song. Yeah. in its original form. And I believe it's in in the car. It's playing in the car when he's abducted at the beginning of Get Out. Exactly. It's it's the very it's it's the very beginning of the film. It's before the opening credits. Okay. Uh, it's on the character of Andre. He's he's lost and walking in a very suburban neighborhood. Uh, he's on the phone with somebody at the beginning, and he's saying he's lost. He's looking at GPS, and this car sees him, turns around, and then begins following him until they finally, uh, yeah, knock him out and abduct him and. Yeah, Run Rabbit Run is playing in the background, and in context of the film, Run Rabbit Run is the perfect, perfect oh, yeah. song. So yeah, I just I have to give, like I said, I have to give props to Jordan Peele. He is just phenomenal, and the stories that he is he's writing that they blow me away. And and like you said, like lyrically, it's perfect. It's it not is. just creepy; it's lyrically perfect to yeah. the theme of the movie. It is, yeah, and and it even harkens back. I was reading online. I don't want to go into great detail on this, but someone was talking about Germans and their master race and how this song, you know, being commentary, being criticism of the Germans, how it's used in Get Out, you know, with the, the racial right. storyline, you know. It, 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 there's just a lot going on in the use of this very simple song, and I, I just, I love it. And the fact that Get Out, a horror film, which is obviously more than a horror film, was nominated for Best Picture that year. Yes. That says a lot, too. That was only the third time in history that a horror film was nominated. So you have Silence of the Lambs. What am I forgetting? What's the Exorcist. Third? Oh, Exorcist, yeah. Exorcist was nominated, did not win. Silence of the Lambs nominated, and surprising Swept the hell everything. out of everybody. Swept everything. Won everything. Uh, it's the only horror film that ever has. Very much like uh, Return of the King. Right. Lord of the Rings as a fantasy film won. Or Titanic. Everything, yeah. Um, but yeah, Get Out, it was. It was only the third horror film in history that was nominated for Best Film. So, there you go. All right. Well, keeping on that theme of older songs uh, that are now seen as creepy because of their use in film, I'm going with Mr. Sandman by the Cordettes, 1954, which was used in Halloween 2 and later in Halloween H2O. I heard this song first. A lot of these songs I heard first in context of the film, right? Not knowing that they existed before. So Halloween 2, I think I recorded it off uh, television when I was probably 
12 years old or whatever on the VCR. And I remember I watched it several times. I loved that movie. In fact, I saw Halloween 2 before I saw the original Halloween. Oh, really? Yeah, because I was just taping. I was in that phase where we had the VCR and man, just you could tape anything, right? It was kind of a smaller version of what Spotify would be. This idea that I can just look in the TV guide or in the newspaper, find out what's going to play, set the timer, and I would just build this collection of movies that I've always wanted to see. And Halloween 2 happened to be one that was on, it was on television. That I, that I recorded. So I remember when the song plays at the end of the film and just how creepy. And I'm like, I, I could tell as a kid that it was an old song. And again, it's that juxtaposition. It didn't fit. I'm like, why, why are they playing this? And then as it continued to play, I'm like, oh, this is creepy. You know, it just really has a, a creepy vibe. And the idea of Mr. Sandman, of course, being this person that controls dreams, but this, this kind of psychological, not psychological, par- paranormal figure. It's almost creepy in the song too. At one point, there's a male voice that's, that, that responds. Oh, yeah. Yes. <laughs> that's creepy in <laughs> yeah. itself. Um, of course, it's been used elsewhere. And Gen Xers would also recognize this song in Back to the Future. Yeah, I was just going to say this is what's playing when he you know, basically arrives tonight. When he arrives to, to downtown. What's the name of the town? I forget the town. When he, when he um, arrives in downtown and um, just watches everything. And burned in my memory is the scene... Uh, or the part of the scene when he turns to the service station and you have like five um, men in dressed, you know, in uniform come out and instantly care to the car, right? One person's filling the tires, one person's checking the hood, one person's filling gas, obviously, they're cleaning the windshield. And it, it, it's this obviously exaggerated version of, of the, right. the great 1950s. Of course, the movie never got into the dark side of the 1950s. Well, no. But no. that wasn't the purpose of the film. They do in a little bit in terms of the mayor. Yeah, um, yeah. Um, but but it's, it's still so... Yeah. Well, yeah. you know, it, clearly it was filmed, you know, Hill Valley, which is Hill Valley, the name yes, of the yes, town. Yes, yes, Hill Valley, clearly, I, I think it was, wasn't it? They're in California, I think. Yeah, oh yeah. yeah. So yeah, it's, it's you're not in the Bible Belt and the deep south of the 1950s for right. you know, what's happening there. But I just remember after seeing Halloween first, of course, and then no, Halloween 2 first, and then seeing Back to the Future, I had creepy vibes with the song. And so it still seemed a little bit creepy <laughs> when all these guys are coming out and they're working on the car, but... Um, yeah, so it's got that, that creepy quality. In fact, I remember, in, well, we went to the same elementary school, but we weren't in the same class. We've discussed that. But I remember uh, remember Mrs. Cure. She was our music teacher. Yes. And there was a, in fact, before, okay, this goes back before I saw Halloween 2. Um, we sang a rendition of the song called Mr. Santa. Mr. Santa, bring me some toys. It, it was obviously written for children's choir. Uh, something, something for all girls and boys. I don't. I still vaguely I have remember it. No memory of that whatsoever. And so when I saw the Halloween two, I'm like, oh, that's the same song, kind of that we were singing in choir. So I have a long history <laughs> with the song. Um, so why do older songs bring out creepy qualities, even though they're bright and happy? Again, it's that juxtaposition of the two, uh, and the fact that older recording methods dated singing. And oh yeah. Let me try that again. Older recording methods and dated singing styles uh, make us unsettled, right? Um, it is strange. You go back and you watch old films, not, not only the cadence in which people speak and the tones in which they speak, the accents and the music has just changed so much over the course of the last like 50, 60, 70 years. It has. So I think part of that's what makes it unsettling as well. Well, and you know, you bring up a good point. That one of the songs, neither one of us used it for this episode, but one of the great examples is Jeepers Creepers. Mm-hmm. Um, because the, the version that is used in that, that film franchise, I and mean, it is, it's 1938, 
and it always plays with that scratchy record, mm-hmm. you know, sound. And it is just, it is actually, I think, taking a song that is actually very, very cute and whimsical. It's about falling in love with someone, looking into their eyes and, you know, falling head over heels. You know, Jeepers Creepers, that's a, you know, it's just a, a minced oath to replace Jesus Christ, you know, originally. But Jeepers Creepers is not meant to be scary. It's it's meant to be an exclamation of, wow, right. you know. Where'd you get those peepers? It's about someone who's just taken aback by the beauty of someone's eyes. Everybody I know, very nearly everybody I know now listens to Jeepers Creepers and they they think it is just a scary right. song. Right. And it, it kind of blows my mind because I, I think of Count Basie and Tony Bennett singing Jeepers Creepers. I'm like, it's, there's nothing remotely scary about this song. It's not the version they use in those movies. But, you know, very much the same thing. And it's 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 used to great effect in those films too because it's used to announce the arrival of the, the, the Reaper or the Creeper, I think is what he's called. Um, but yeah, there's just something about those old songs and it, it just does amazing things to the psychological you know I, I don't know I don't right. even know how to describe it it just it's just a slow unraveling sure and it plays upon the senses you there's, know? there's a version of uh, Mr. Sandman by Emmylou Harris uh, which came out in 1981 I have not taken the time to go uh, back and listen to it but we'll throw it on our oh. mentioned songs list too well I'm, I'm not a big country fan so I, I don't know. Yeah, Emily Harris is. Uh, she is country, but I see her as more like Americana. Yeah, she she is. She is. She is she's more. She's with uh, Neil Young and. Yeah, she is more Americana, but I, I don't know her discography well enough um, to know that she had recorded a version of it. Be interested to hear it. All right. Well, we finally made it, folks. This is my sixth and final song for side A, um, and I have. This is the second time that I have used this song this season. Oh, no, I can't say that. The last time I used it was for Valentine's Day, which was technically... So we're repeating a song? That's a different version. Different version. Okay. Yeah, repeating a song, different version. Uh, The song is Blue Moon, and it is uh, by Richard Rodgers and Lawrence Hart. Uh, They began writing this for the 1933 movie musical Hollywood Party, but it was cut from the film. Uh, The following year, it was used in Manhattan Melodrama, starring Clark Gable, William Powell, and Myrna Loy, where it was performed by Shirley Ross in a nightclub scene. Uh, the song was originally called The Bad in Every Man, befitting the story of uh, Clark Gable's kind-hearted criminal, but it was rejected by M- MGM until it was reworked as Blue Moon. Um, Rogers and Hart, they wrote many songs for Broadway plays, and we talked about that uh, during the Valentine's Day episode. Um, but Blue Moon has taken on a life of its own. It's really one of those songs that has transcended the musical genre, and it has become, in many ways, one of the most romantic songs of any era. There, there's still, especially in the world of jazz, Blue Moon has re, has been recorded by everybody and continues to be recorded by everybody. But arguably, the very best known version of the song is not a jazz rendition at all, but rather it is by a doo-wop group called the Marcells, and it was recorded in 1961. Bum 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 b
bump, dang it, dang, dang, ding it, on the blue moon. You knew just what I was Producer Stu Phillips was ordered by his boss not to waste time on the Marcells. He was not a fan. He thought that they lacked any real talent and to spend his days devoted to a different artist at Cool Picks Records. But he didn't say anything about his nights and Phillips waited until everyone else had gone home and he sneaked the band, he sneaked the Marcells back into the studio for a secret session. They recorded this song, their version of Blue Moon, at the very last minute Uh, They recorded three songs, actually, and they needed a fourth. So when one of the members said he knew Blue Moon, Phillips told him to teach the song to the rest of the group in one hour, and they would record it. The the introduction to the song, uh, bop, 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 you know, that, you know, lead-in, it was actually uh, an an excerpt of an original song that the group had in its act. Uh, Phillips added it to Blue Moon to give it a flair Uh, that the group was lacking in the other songs. Well, the Marcells recorded this in two takes. A promotion man asked and got a copy of the finished tape, which found its way to legendary DJ Murray the K. Murray the K promoted it as an exclusive. He played it 26 times when first given the record on one show. And suddenly this song just skyrocketed. Uh, Blue Moon by the Marcells hit number one, stayed there for a couple of weeks, Richard Rogers, who penned Blue Moon, hated the Marcel's doo-wop version, hated the arrangement, so much that he took out an advertisement in the music papers urging people not to buy it, okay? The Marcel's Blue Moon, why is it included here? It is one of three different versions of the song, three times the song plays, in a 1981 horror film titled An American Werewolf in London. I know it's in the opening closing credits, it's also elsewhere as well? Yeah. Um, well, the opening credits feature a version by Bobby Vinton. Oh, okay. 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 And uh, Blue Moon by the Marcells, that's how the, the film ends. But in between, and this is the version I wanted to use, is the, the third version. Uh, it's actually a little-known version by Sam Cooke. And Sam Cooke's version is probably the most important of the three because it is the song that plays during David Naughton's very famous on-screen transformation. Oh, right, right, right. When he actually turns into the werewolf for that first time, it's Sam Cooke's version that's playing. Spotify, of course... Doesn't have it. Did it to me again. They did not have Sam Cooke's version, um, which is a shame because it's a very beautiful version of the song. Um, But... It was originally, uh, Sam Cooke's version was originally found uh, in the 1951, 1959 LP, The Wonderful World of Sam Cooke. Um, it, it's very hard to find that album. And the 45 is even rarer. Um, yeah, the transforma- that transformation. Now, David Naughton, of course, he was a pepper, if you remember. <laughs> the old, you know, I'm a pepper, you're a pepper, Dr. Pepper uh, advertisement. That's where he got his real claim to fame. But the transformation that he goes through on film in 1981, this is before CGI. Right. It still holds up. Yeah. Because I, I rewatched it uh, just this past week um, because it had been years since I had seen it. And it, it is still, it's pretty damn amazing given what John Landis had to work with in 1981. That transformation is actually what inspired Michael Jackson's 
thriller video. Right. Michael Jackson was so excited by watching the transformation in American Werewolf in London that he went to John Landis and asked Landis to direct the thriller video. And he said, I need a werewolf transformation in the video. So that's that's how uh, thriller was always really two different videos in one. Sure. Because you had the werewolf in the cemetery and then of course you have the zombies later. But yeah, this is the the scene from the film that, that inspired Thriller. Um, here's the real question. Do you know what a blue moon is? Uh, let me think here. I mean, I know it's has something to do with the relation of the moon and the earth that only happens twice a year? Um, you're, you're close. Okay. You're really, really close. A, a blue moon... And I didn't know. I, I looked it up <laughs> because astronomy is not my my uh, my specialty by any stretch. A blue moon is actually a real astronomical phenomenon. Uh, it, it is when a second full moon appears. Okay. 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 Yeah. Uh, when that actually happens depends on who you ask. The, the modern definition simply asserts that it's when two full moons occur in the same calendar month. But the original definition is a little more complicated. Apparently... About every 2.7 years, there are four full moons in a season instead of three. And the third moon, not the fourth, but the third full moon is the one that's dubbed the blue moon. Okay. Uh, the rarity of the occasion inspired the old saying, once in a blue moon. Right. And incidentally, neither definition involves the moon's color because the moon never turns blue. It can, however, take on a blush cast when there's ash in the atmosphere. Uh, but it's, Unlike the strawberry moon, which we saw this summer. Yes. Yeah, um, yeah but, but yeah, blue moon. Why it's called a blue moon, That I, literally why it's called a blue moon, I, I could not find in any any of my research. But yeah, I, I never knew the, the actual definition of, you know, what categorizes a blue moon. So that was pretty pretty neat to look up. Um, yeah, I wish I had Sam Cooke's version for you. I, well, I do have Sam Cooke's version, but I wish Spotify had it because they don't. I'm going with the Marcells, which is really just just as good. I love, love this doo-wop arrangement. And I thought, got to include, I knew I needed something from American Werewolf in London. It's one of my favorite horror films. And that soundtrack is incredible. I mean, not only does it have the three Blue Moon versions, but it also has Bad Moon Rising. It has Moon Dance. And they, John Landis plays pretty, pretty freely with, you know, anything Moon, Moon, it's like he's making Based. his own mixtape for he, the soundtrack. He, that's exactly what he's doing, yeah. I mean, the, the lyrics and the titles of, of the songs are all very apropos. So um, there you go. That's my sixth and final track for side A. All right. My last track here. Um, just like you mentioned, the one that I wanted to use is not available on Spotify, so I couldn't use it. So I went with an alternate one. I went with Lost in the Shadows from The Lost Boys, 1987, by Foreigners Lou Graham.
You know which one I wanted to use, right? Uh, the real creepy one. The real creepy one. Echo and the Bunny Echo. was a version of People Are Strange by The Doors. Oh, oh, they don't have that on Spotify? It's not on Spotify. It's not. I thought that they had the entire soundtracks. Or they do, place. but that one's grayed out, so they must have lost the rights oh, to it at damn. some point. Yeah, I remember watching, that was at the McKinley Theater when I saw Lost Boys. I remember specifically oh, yeah. when that song played, and I remember, again, we were pretty young at the time, but I remember thinking, I thought that was a door song, but I knew it wasn't the door singing. Yeah. But of all the songs, and there are a lot of songs that really stick out in that movie, but that one really stuck out as being really, really creepy. Because I believe, if I remember, it's been a long time since I watched the movie, but they're on the Santa Monica, Bull, um, Santa Monica uh, board watch. Let me try that again. Santa Monica Boardwalk. Yep. And they're just kind of showing all the f- kind of freaky, strange people that are walking around. Yeah. I don't know that, if I'm right about that, but that's yeah. how I remember it. Yeah. That, well, and then if I... Now, I've, I've watched The Lost Boys so many times, I should know this. I should have it memorized. But not only do they show the boardwalk and a lot of the people watching as that song plays, but I believe that is also when they pan to all the missing Oh, okay. The missing posters that may be, yeah, for all yeah, the yeah, kids. Yeah, um, I could be wrong on that, but yeah, it's very early in the film uh, when, right when the the family moves in with Grandpa, and you know they're going to the boardwalk for that first time. It's it's a great rendition of the Doors. Well, I, I went out and bought the soundtrack on cassette after seeing the movie, and that was my introduction to Echo and the Bunnymen, as well as uh, I believe it was a, there was a cover version of of the of the Falls song. Um, I still believe. Yeah. Or was it the call? The call. It was the call. The call, yeah. And uh, what else? So you had, of course, Car Little Sister, which we featured on one of the previous. That was on the 80s movies. uh, No, it was Halloween. It It wasn't the Halloween scary? No, No, I I used it for the 80s movies. Oh, okay. Okay, cool. I believe so. No, you're probably right. (laughs) I think so. One of them. And then I went with here with uh, Lost in the Shadows. So if you were in the mood for spot-on 80s production, (laughs) I got you covered here. Um, The song, like I said, was performed by Foreigner's Lou Graham, appeared on the soundtrack and uh it is it is 80s sounding you know if this would be one that i would, could see popping up in stranger things because it sounds very very 80s oh it sounds like foreigner <laughs> well, yeah but even more yeah, understandably 80s than foreigner yeah um the song was pretty much forgotten as soon as it was heard it, i believe it was a single I, don't, I didn't look to see if it charted if it did it, i mean there's a music video so it probably was a single i don't remember being big um, but uh, I just, I, like I said, I had the cassette, and sometimes I would listen to my cassette with my Walkman on my bike, which was not safe. I was told not to by my parents, but sometimes I didn't listen to my parents. And if you remember in the movie, <laughs> the shock, the, the, the <laughs> song plays in the movie when the motorcycle chase is going on, when they almost lead. Um, is it? Uh, is it Michael? I think is. Yeah, um, Michael is Patrick. Uh, wow, well, what's yeah, his yeah, name? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, the older brother. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Why can't I think Patrick? Um, so, um, his last name is Patrick, right? I think, yeah, Jason Patrick. Yeah, yeah. Jason Patrick. And so it, it's the one where they almost lure him over the cliff on his motorcycle, but it's there in that chasing. So I, I distinctly remember blasting that on my Walkman and riding my bike as fast as I could, like downhills and stuff, <laughs> trying to <laughs> catch vampires on my bike. So, yeah. Um, I was going to ask you when you saw The Last Boys uh, last um Last, you said you've watched it a lot. Yeah, the last time I watched it was probably a year and a half, two years so ago. So how does it hold up in relation to other vampire films since? Um, it is still, I would say, one of the greatest ever made. It, it holds up really well. The only real issue with The Lost Boys is the the fashions. Um, okay. Because if you look at like Corey Haim, no one wants to see that 
outfit worn (laughs) by anybody ever again. Um, Now, I will say the vampires themselves, I mean, you know, if you look... Isn't uh, uh, Ted from Bill and Ted also one of the vampires? Yeah. Um, Yeah, he's in there. Um, Oh, no, Bill. It's a Bill. Bill. Ted, yeah, Ted, yeah. Ted is Ted, Keanu Reeves. Okay, right, yeah. Right, yeah. Uh, but yeah, Bill's in there. Um, and, and Jamie Gertz. Jamie, yeah, Jamie Gertz, who Gertz, yeah. loved Jamie Gertz. She was up there. She was one of my my crushes in the 80s. Um, she's in it. And of course, um, you have Corey Hay and Corey Feldman. Um, the Corey's. Diane Weist played yes, the mom. Yes, yes. Um, and by the way, it's the Santa Monica Pier. It's not a boardwalk. Yeah, I want to. Yeah. All the Californians out there that are mad at me for messing them up. I know it's not a boardwalk. It's a pier. So yeah, I, I think I repeated the, the faux pas. Uh, <laughs> but nonetheless, um, yeah, no, it, it holds up incredibly well. Um, the, the special effects are just, they're, they're still pretty damn impressive. Uh, it, and it still is genuinely scary. I mean, it's a genuinely scary film. And the humor still pays off, especially at the end when the grandfather says, the one thing I hate about Santa Monica is uh, all the damn vampires. You know, it, it still holds up incredibly well. I remember it felt a little Stephen Kingish to me because you have kids, you know, ordinary yeah. kids coming together to defeat mm-hmm. evil. Absolutely. Which is, you know, King's main theme. Yeah. And it's still Kiefer Sutherland's greatest role. Yeah. It just yeah. is. I mean, he will. Even, even more than Jack Bauer? Yeah. I loved, loved 24. But yeah, Kiefer Sutherland will forever be David. And, you know, it's just nice to see vampires that don't sparkle. So uh, I'll, leave, I'll leave it at that. Uh, wow. Well, okay. yeah, that was um, that was quite a bit. But uh, you know what? It's fun just talking movies and music once in a while. It is. And, I, you know, if anybody tuned in, they knew what they were getting on this one. Yep. I don't think we've talked enough about movies right. uh, for this one. I think we still paid more attention to the music um we have a whole batch next week we do we have we have 12 more movies to discuss next week maybe we'll kind of shift a little bit and talk film which eh, who the hell knows i never, <laughs> I never know what we're going to talk about but uh no I, it is a great great mix and with that happy halloween folks yes, it's happy coming. halloween halloween is coming and We will give you another episode next week. Yep, that's all for now. Hot Fun Cool Punk, even if it's old junk. Another mix of memories awaits next week. But for now, press pause, lift the needle, and hit eject, and we will see you on the flip side. Sitting in a box undigified Gonna rewind and give them one more try Think about the days of lo-fi Mixtape Memorex and TDK Getting music out there the old-fashioned way Making the greatest hits of one day Mixtape Phonograph and dual cassette Before you could get everything on the internet But some things ain't made it there yet Mixtape Line in, line out if you don't have a line Hold the recorder to the speaker, turn the volume to nine Here's an accidental slice of time
My memories these days aren't so trusty Like the mixtape, they're musty and dusty And sometimes when we want to start Everything just falls apart Driving real late, Delta 88 45 on a side, then I'm through the state No iPod shuffle, you know your fate Mixtape Compiled by a friend, amateur DJing With no concern for what format's playing It was more about what the songs were saying Mixtape Got some Merle Haggard, an old George Jones Someone yelling in the background, I thought I heard a phone But it's nice when you're all alone to have a mixtape Line in, line out, if you don't have a line Hold the recorder to the speaker, turn the volume to nine There's an accidental slice of time 